Thanks for listening to Shift Your Spirits. I'm Slade Robertson. For over 12 years, I've been a professional intuitive and personal development blogger. I try to talk about spirituality with fewer hearts and flowers than most New Age blather. I also mentor emerging intuitives, psychics, and healers in a program called Automatic Intuition. It is Wednesday, June 19th, 2018, as I record this introduction. In this week's episode, a continuation of the paranormal memoir, Awaking Spirits. And as always, there's an oracle segment at the end of the show, so be thinking about a question or a concern you have. Hold it in your mind, and I'll come back on after the final links and credits and leave you with that extra channeled message. In personal news, uh, since this episode is a part two, I'm going to keep the introduction short for those who are binging through and listening to the episodes in rapid succession. Hopefully there will be less interruption in the story that way. Before I forget, I do want to say a quick thank you to my newest supporter on Patreon, Natalie, and also a thank you to Sean for editing his pledge up to the mastery level. I appreciate all of you who've pledged your support at any level, and I'm really excited to see the new names each week. It demonstrates that you're enjoying the show and want it to continue. That's very encouraging to me, so thank you. Listeners who support the show on Patreon can access a guided meditation called Messages from Your Spirit Guides, exclusive bonus episodes, and there's also a mastery level of support where you can download one of my courses for free each month. To find out how you can become a patron, support my time in producing this show, and access all the extra bonus content, please go to patreon.com slash shiftyourspirits. At the end of the first part of this story about the spirits in my new house, I told you I'd found one of the pennies in my bedroom, right where my computer was going to go. My cat Sarah would not go into my bedroom at the house on Daniel. From the first moment she entered the place, she knew where the activity centered. She'd been physically moved more than most cats can handle and had generally learned to adapt quickly to new places, but during the entire year that we lived at Daniel, she stubbornly refused to go anywhere near any of the hot spots in the house or in the outside surrounding property. Even though she'd slept with me for 14 years, at Daniel she stayed in the hallway looking into my bedroom. She'd nose in briefly and glance around, but she would never settle down or stay no matter how often I tried to talk her into it. She simply wasn't comfortable in the room. She'd sit on her haunches, watching through the door while I worked at the computer. I finally had to make her a little fleece pallet in the hall because I couldn't stand to see her sleeping on the hard floor like a stray on a stoop. She'd follow me partially up the stairs when I went into the attic, craning her neck to see and calling for me to come back, but unable to commit to exploring the little room at the top. I was most excited for her about the backyard because she'd always required an outside space to go poke around in, and all the years of my 20s and into my 30s, I'd never been able to live in a building because her quality of life required a ground-level door or window or a patch of grass. The Daniel house seemed like a dream living situation. It had an enormous, entirely fenced-in back lot with loose hedgerows and ancient trees, I just knew she'd be in heaven, and I'd be able to release the part of my breath I always held when she ventured outside. 
The first time I coaxed her beyond the mudroom door and out onto the patio slab, she took one look at the giant's footprint that my brother believed was a cellar, and she never went out there again unchaperoned. She insisted on going out to squat on the front concrete steps instead, mirroring the old lady that watched us from her porch across the street. It felt like Sarah was telepathically downloading data, energetic history about the house from that crone, right through the screen door, across lawn and asphalt and grass again. It wasn't the first time my familiar befriended a neighborhood granny woman. She was drawn to them. I imagine they delivered her updates of wisdom in their coos and whispers and little treats, instructions from some secret network of Bene Gesserit overseers for whom she was an agent in disguise. Even when she was the size of my fist, Sarah was never really the type of cat who behaved like a kitten. She seemed more like a tiny Betty Davis, stalking around in feline furs, a bit disgusted with my direction, disappointed with the role, but playing it to the full extent of her thespian power. My own little frustrated fairy godmother. I called her my old lady baby. Sarah hunched in the back doorway beside the washing machine and the recycling bins and watched me sweep the patio slab. She eyed the wet concrete with her wary sneer as if I skated on the frozen gray crust of a poison pond. Maybe she'd already read the uncanny language written there, the hieroglyphs of fallen twigs. I'd been obliterating those patterns with my broom for several afternoons before I began to notice the calligraphic lines of the sticks and leaf stems. The tree that towered above the little house was an ent, leaning over to right across Daniel's roof, sidewalk, and drive. I was standing on a giant dryad's composition, padding and scratching back and forth between the margins, erasing whole parts of paragraphs in the middle of a tree spirit's page. This was several years ago, remember, at a time when I acquired my first cheap digital camera. I snapped hundreds of gritty pics of these formations. My first thought was honestly photographing fairies, not ghosts, that I was capturing evidence of some kind of geomancy. The patterns alluded ever so slightly and delicately to something more like crop circles, ley lines, and standing stones. The more I looked, the more this leafy litter began to seem arranged to me. The most unsettling thing about that was the needle prick of realization of all the messages I must have already destroyed with my sweeping. The empty empty moss-edge slab of the patio became a deleted document. I don't remember where the impulse came from, the idea that I might be able to pull back what I'd removed, but I scooped a fistful of sticks and stems, acorn caps and pine cone scales, and then yanked the floor of my palm out from under them, letting the debris fall to the pavement like a handful of jacks. A column of repetition and pattern appeared, a streak of order, and the order wanted to mean something. I hurried into the house to find the camera as if the message would dissemble or somehow blow away if my stare wasn't there to hold it in place. I photographed the sloppy wannabe Andrew Goldsworthy-esque graffiti and then I threw another handful, picture snap, and then another. 
The afternoon light faded toward dark 30, and Sarah nagged me to come back inside. She'd given in once or twice to the overwhelming impulse to scuttle up, tail low, and sniff at my divination experiment. A little digression here. Isn't it misleading that the word stickomancy is a form of throwing open a book and selecting a random passage for the purpose of divination? I've run across multiple terms, but the word claromancy will do, a very ancient technique of divination by throwing lots using small objects like beans, stones, sticks, shells, dice, bones, pottery shards... Seth taught his little niece and nephew to play a game based on my experience where they throw sticks and then they see if they can identify an image that the composition looks like. Maybe a laughing face or a racing boat or the exact moment of flowers' petals are blown off by a breeze. The hope is that a child might unselfconsciously crack the code that an adult mind worries into nonsense. Sarah seemed to think the lots I'd drawn were meaningful as well, but she insisted by her head-tossing meows that I could just as easily study the images on my computer. I spent hours that night watching the pictures slowly cross-fade in a slideshow accompanied by an iTunes playlist provided by the Ghost in the Machine. In the pauses between songs, I started to hear it, and with a mouse click, I hushed everything in the house. Sarah and I cocked our ears to listen. There it was again, through the wall behind the computer. No, the ceiling in my closet, which was the attic stairs. The unmistakable ping and the miniature drum roll rattle, the tiny manhole cover clatter of a coin dropped on a hard floor. I found three more coins inside the door to the attic, perched on the lips of the bottom steps, two on the edge of the first step up, one on the second. I'd never encountered this result from a penny charm before. I just placed the coins redundantly above that same doorway. I crawled on all fours far enough up those steep stairs to peek across the attic floor. I don't know what I expected to see. Maybe the coins actually launched through the air toward me from a dark corner. I've seen video footage where paranormal investigators throw stones or marbles and rubber balls into the shadows and then watch them return right before their eyes. It seems like this usually happens with playful child spirits. And maybe the ghosts were just playing with me. The story of my time at Daniel was significant to my becoming an intuitive by profession, not only because of the actual phenomena or experiences that took place there, but because of the relationships, the associations, the pieces of awareness that began to come together and fall apart for me while living in that house. You've heard me talk about my stroke and my being housebound, teaching myself to write code. This is the house where that all happened. They're almost circular story arcs over the course of my lifetime, an inward spiraling that becomes tighter and close enough to qualify as simply overlapping. The happenings began with my brother when we were kids. They came back when we lived together again as grown men. He was the one who remembered the most. 
At first, I suspected that the activity I witnessed at the Daniel House was the work of a poltergeist, and many contemporary parapsychologists theorize that poltergeists are projected by adolescents, that they are darker spiritual energies manifested by and external to a specific individual. My brother was a bit too old to qualify as a youth, but he did still maintain youthful qualities in his lifestyle. Nothing too raucous by any means, just a little rock and roll, the hours and some of the company he kept, the buzzes they enjoyed, his sleeping patterns, the way he disappeared into the cave of his bedroom, uncommunicative to surf the web and play video games. I really believed either something was attached to him and he had brought it with him or else there was something already present in the house that had taken an interest in him. I thought of it and referred to it as his poltergeist until he left to go on tour and the energy I expected to leave with him stayed behind. The first night after he left, the noises started up again, just like they always did. I remember the exact moment when it dawned on me, and by the way, who was I to judge his lifestyle? Wasn't I just writing out the clock of my 20s that began in college, the one that was losing steam as I lost my way? It wasn't about him. It was about me. And, as if in response, an affirmation, I saw shadows behind me shift and move. I discovered that the powered-off desktop monitor acted as a darkened mirror. I watched the reflection of movement in the dim, shut-down computer screen in front of me. I began to sit at my desk for great lengths of time before logging on, just observing the gray columns of air that waved like seaweed or drapery pleats along the hallway behind me, waiting for those few fleeting moments when facial features emerged, leaning in as if to read over my shoulder. Yes, of course, I felt a chill of their breath on the back of my neck, just as you may have in sympathy hearing about that. You too may have experienced this countless times. Only a few weeks after we moved into Daniel, my brother's girlfriend stayed over and woke up talking about what she'd been hearing in the night. I overheard her conversation and immediately engaged her so she'd feel affirmed, and so I would too. My brother swore he hadn't seen or heard anything, which is what first made me suspicious that it might be connected with him in some way, but he shocked me by telling her stories of the haunted greenhouse. We had not talked about it in years. I wasn't sure until that moment just how much he had witnessed and remembered. He drew me in to participate in this narration, but he supplied most of the details. Together, we told her the stories that I related in the Vortex memoirs. In order to tell you how I came to separate out the messages from spirit guides, from the petty noise-making of ghosts, to discern angels from apparitions, and to be aware that there are those who walk among us, guiding us, who are not human, I had to tell you about Jesse, who basically announced to me that they were about to re-enter my life in a whole new way. So hopefully you can begin to see how these Rambling tales are really not random spooky moments from my life, but all the backstory that I want to share with you that leads up to the ultimatum from my guides. How Shift Your Spirits came to be. How everything you know of me, which is only a little bit, who I have so recently become in this world, a professional intuitive and author slash teacher of woo-woo stuff, a spiritual entrepreneur, 
it was not some tidy, straight shot of towing the line and being a really well-behaved person. Who I have become emerged from the great wreckage of my earlier life. You have met me, having crawled out of a ditch I first fell into while living at the house at Daniel. It's a pretty cliche spiritual transformation biography, really. I'm not just special in some way that other people aren't. I'm one of billions, all with a story to tell and a lesson to be had from it. I'm not metaphysical royalty. I fucked it all up royally. It all went to hell, and I'm sure I was either navigating or driving at least some of the time. The worst life you could possibly live, and the one you would most like to create for yourself, they have remarkably similar ingredients. I came to resemble that person that's always in each episode of the reenactment show, A Haunting, the one who seems to be losing his mind as either a precursor to or the direct result of losing everything else. I stopped eating, I stopped sleeping, I even stopped reading books. I either unconsciously withdrew from my friends or else they abandoned me. I've never been sure if it was my fault, theirs, or all of the above, but the results were the same. It was devastating and isolating. The job that seemed to be so perfect for me that I'd moved from another state to pursue was a disaster. My immediate supervisor, who had clicked with me so well during the interview process, was a monster behind closed doors. When no witnesses were around, I was cruelly bullied with a degree of viciousness that no one in that office would have believed. About six months in, I woke up one morning partially paralyzed. The left side of my face, my left shoulder, extending into my arm and hand. The doctor said maybe a minor stroke brought on by stress, which has always been the diagnosis that felt most likely to me. A few spiritual healer types have suggested shamanic sickness, and that sounds a little bit more glamorous than the truth of my beaten down mind-body-spirit connection. I was forced to resign from that perfect job after they insisted I come by the office before going to the emergency room to prove that I was paralyzed. I was laid off from two more positions in quick succession, and I was working with an agent who secured me a book publishing deal, and that soon imploded. It's a long story for another time and place. I've told you pieces of it before. Let's just say I barely escaped with my content and my copyrights intact. I have never admitted it to anyone, but I feared at the time that I might be experiencing some kind of possession. I've never said so because I don't want anyone to confuse communicating with spirit guides with possession. They're not the same thing. Later, looking back, there's no confusion about this. There were two distinctly different kinds of phenomena happening. I straddled two worlds. The house was filled with basically two groups of spirit entities. One kind threw pennies at me from the shadows in the attic, rattled cabinet doors, made the lights dim and the computer screen flip, and manifested as a coil of dark smoke in a corner of my bedroom. They contacted me just to get my attention, to distract me or to be noticed just for the sake of being noticed. They weren't children so much as they were childlike. They punked me like teenagers in search of adrenaline, ringing doorbells, and then running away. They were active in the night. The other group wanted desperately to tell me things. They were persistent but gentle. They offered advice, 
commenting on practical circumstances. Their insights were inspiring and proved to be not only true, but truly useful. Those voices came in the morning. You know that transitional dream state where you're just beginning to wink back into waking awareness, but still clinging to the threads of your interior interior astral reality? I would come to in the midst of conversations with people. And for the next few years, I would immediately lurch to the computer to record the topics of these dialogues. There was an emotional urgency that accompanied the messages, the voices. There were actual words, clues, most often fragmented and minimal in the word count department, but very specific. I experimented with the most low-impact, low-risk instructions, things that involve no one else, that if they led to nothing, nobody need ever know about but me. Strange, eccentric little tidbits of information that seemed so random when they first came through, but then proved to be these powerful road signs. One example that stands out to this day that still makes me whisper, how else could this be possible? I ran across some letters in a box from a friend I had not spoken to in over 10 years. I felt so much guilt and grief realizing how I had dissolved the connection. For years, I had allowed him to believe that he had wronged me. Actually, it was worse. I gave him no reason, just sudden silence. I left him to wonder as my more recently estranged friends were then torturing me. I felt all the pain of that action return to me with the accumulated interest of its years. It was the first time I directly asked these benevolent spirits to do something for me. Find a way for me to get in touch with him, just so I can apologize and let him know that he didn't do anything wrong. I imagined I might run across a current address online, uh, that I might be able to send him an email, At best, that is. I didn't believe yet that they could assist me by sort of granting wishes. The next day, the very freaking next day, I was pulled out of the house for an insignificant errand to buy toothpaste. This was the first time I was distinctly aware that the voices came along in the car with me, like this hushed and hard-to-hear GPS They urged me past the closest grocery store, past a Walgreens, past the CBS, several others of their kind, and all the way across town to a pharmacy at an interstate overpass. He was there in the dental aisle. He didn't even live in Atlanta. He was driving to Savannah and had stopped at this random exit in the suburbs to buy a new toothbrush. I couldn't even begin to make him know how I knew what serendipity had just happened or been arranged. It was a magic enough had it been unconscious and incidental, but I was aware that this was happening as it was happening. And, um, you know, lots transpired, um, but we are friends again and we're still in touch to this day. Every time I retrieve a message for someone during a reading, I recall how seemingly insignificant the packaging might appear to be at first. Clues, not necessarily answers. In regards to my book deal disaster, I was told over and over to view source. 
I would hear a very distinct male voice lean in and murmur in my left ear when I was on the computer, view the source, the source code, the page source. I knew nothing about computer programming. I thought code referred to some kind of math and that computer science, well, it distinctly had the word science in it. It's a language, this man's voice kept insisting. I knew what I must appear like to external eyes, an out-of-work insomniac whose phone rarely rang and whose friends no longer even replied to his emails, his cat had even stopped sleeping with him. I was paralyzed in front of a computer screen, muttering to myself, perpetually nosing through the scrolls of HTML and JavaScript and CSS that runs like this underground river of information just behind the pages on the web. But it is a language. And it began to make sense to me, and I looked for resources to teach me more, and it was this skill set that rescued me from financial destitution and gave me the ability to publish myself. You wouldn't know jack about me. You wouldn't be listening to any of this without that moment when I clicked the words page source because I kept hearing a voice say it to me over and over again. God, and I would have never predicted or believed that I would be here a few years later, 12 years later, admitting that I began to do what the voices in my head suggested. Penny, pitch, poltergeist, presence, paralysis, page source, programming. I've now learned that this kind of alliteration accompanies names or keywords that are trying to come through for me intuitively. You know how it feels when you have a word right on the tip of your tongue, your mind frantically feels around in the dark, it finds the knob but keeps fumbling for the keyhole? Clear audience feels like a sustained version of that state. Instead of seconds that soon slip into place, it goes on for minutes, entire mornings, like waking up with the same song stuck in your head day after day. And once the right word hits, it lights up. The ticker tape freezes and full sentences emerge. Back then, it was words that begin with P. P words everywhere. My brother's name begins with a P, by the way. Then there was my friend Paul back in Chattanooga. He'd taken it really hard when I told him that I was moving back to Atlanta. Paul had been a really successful computer programmer, but then he started drinking a lot. Drinking in secret and alone. His house was always lively with friends. He had a great deck and a garden and people congregated around his abundance. But even when neighbors stopped by in the morning for coffee, he'd be sneaking off into the kitchen pantry or the bathroom to have a little nip of something, to pop or snort something else. And the one habit he had managed to quit cold turkey was answering my phone calls. I assumed he needed a little time and space to pout about me moving. I sat straight up in bed one morning, gasping like someone whose shoulders had been held down underwater. Paul. The P words stopped scrolling on Paul. They were talking about Paul. Maybe that was why the insistence on the programming and the page source code and I knew then that he was in some kind of trouble. I also knew that he no longer spoke to me 
You know how so often, more than by any other method, you learn to trust your intuition after failing miserably to listen to what it's trying to tell you once or twice? Hearing it distinctly and clearly, but not having faith in it and not following through. Then something happens and you promise yourself, you vow, next time I will listen and I will act. I waited five days knowing something was wrong. I knew Paul wouldn't pick up if I called anyway. He never did. When Paul's roommate finally answered, he told me that Paul had gone up into the attic several days prior and hanged himself. Thanks again for listening to the Shift Your Spirits podcast. For show notes, links, transcripts, and all the past episodes, please visit shiftyourspirits.com. You can subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever app you use to access podcasts. If you'd like to get an intuitive reading with me or download a free ebook and meditation to help you connect with your guides, please go to sladeroberson.com. And if you're interested in my professional intuitive training program, you can start the course for free by downloading the attunement at automaticintuition.com. Before I go, I promise to leave you a message in answer to a question or a concern you may have, so take a moment to think about that. Hold it in your mind or speak it out loud. I'll pause for just a few seconds right now. You don't actually have to decide right now. You don't have to definitively answer once and for all right away. So why don't you move the goalpost, expand the goal from making a decision to researching more options to inform that decision. There are some components you still have yet to consider. Do set a time frame on your consideration, though. You know when you're just procrastinating. Be mindful of that. And I'll talk to you later.